0: Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then if you move to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our, and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 31. God saw all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we're starting a new series today entitled, The Big Story of the Bible, Finding Our Place in God's Story. You see, the Bible tells one big unified story, and it finds its climax in Jesus. So in one sense, the Bible is all about Jesus. But it's more than that. It's the story of God and his relationship to the world. So this is the true story of the whole world. And it's within this story that we find our place, that we find our true identity and meaning and purpose in life. Now, we often struggle to, to see and grasp this bigger story. We're very good at, at, at knowing passages within the Bible, but, but we often fail to see how they all connect to each other and how they, they tell this bigger story. And part of the reason is, well, because the Bible's so big and it's so diverse that we, we, we struggle to see it. And so I think it's quite helpful if we see the Bible as a drama That is made up of six acts. In act one is creation. God establishes his kingdom, creates his kingdom. Act two, four. There's human rebellion within the kingdom. Then act three is Israel, the story of Israel. God chooses the nation of Israel, and it's through this nation that God is going to restore the world. And so the restoration of of the kingdom is initiated. And in Act 4, Jesus, the King comes. God decisively acts through Jesus to restore and establish his kingdom. Act 5 is the church, the spreading the good news of the King. In both words and action. And this is where we find our place. This is where we fit in to the story. And then Acts 6. Restoration or, or new creation. The king returns. And the whole cosmos is fully restored and renewed. And the kingdom is fully established. It's completed. And so that's the story of God in a nutshell. And this is the true story of the world, and I invite you to find your place within the story. Now, every story needs a gripping start, a, a, a gripping opening line that's going to grab your attention. And no story has a better opening line than the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. That the Bible merely assumes God's existence, the Bible doesn't try to to prove God's existence. It merely starts by declaring, "In the beginning, God." And we're not told who this God is or or where He came from. We merely introduce to Him. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie, and, and and all of a sudden the main character appears on scene. At that point, you don't know anything about this character, uh, what they like, uh, uh, who they are. But as the story unfolds, you soon discover a lot about who they are and what they like. And by the time we get it to the end of Genesis chapter 1, we know a lot about God. And by the time we get to the end of the, the whole book of Genesis, and by the time we get to Jesus, we know a whole lot more about who this God is and what, what he's like. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is not the absolute beginning, because God doesn't have a beginning. God's always existed. And so this is not referring to the absolute beginning, but it's referring to the time when God started to create. This is the beginning of our world. This is the time when God began to create the heavens and the earth. The whole cosmos is referring to the physical world, the beginning of the physical world. We're not told anything about the spiritual realm in Genesis. We're not told about angels and demons. Yet as the story unfolds, we soon realize that they are real and active within the world. But we aren't told anything about them. We're merely told about the beginning of, of the physical world. And the verb created is is a gripping verb in a gripping opening line. The verb created in the Old Testament is only used for God. In the Old Testament, only God creates. Whenever the verb is used, God is the subject. And it's all about bringing things into being, bringing the whole creation into being, into existence. We live in a cause and effect universe. So, for for example, when I hear a big bang upstairs, I ask, what was that? Inevitably, I hear a small voice saying, nothing. (laughs) But I don't believe the small voice because we live in a cause and effect environment. Big bangs don't just happen. And God is the ultimate cause of everything that exists. And and, and that line, the first sentence, is just the headline of the whole creation account. And the rest of Genesis 1 tells us how God actually goes about creating. And this is where all the problems start. (laughs) Genesis is a problem for many people. Many people will say, well... Of course, I can't accept the first three chapters of Genesis. And I always want to ask, well, what do you mean when you say you you can't accept it? You you can't accept it as what? And of course, most people, what they mean by that is they can't accept it as a literal historical account. And therefore, they conclude, if it's not a literal historical account, it must be a myth. It must be just a made-up story that has absolutely no truth to it. Now, I don't think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a literal historical account, but nor do I think it's a myth. I I believe it is a symbolic historical account. It is historical. God really did create. Adam and Eve were real people. So it's very historical, but it's told in a very symbolic way. It uses poetry and metaphors and symbolism. So, Genesis 1 is like a song of creation. In Exodus chapter 14, we are given a literal historical account of the crossing of the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, we're given a song by Marian of that exact same event. Both communicating historical truth, but one using prose, another one using poetry. Poetry. And so modern science is not in conflict with the Bible. Both uh, uh, modern science and the Bible are offering compelling answers to different questions. Science uses scientific language to answer the scientific questions of how and when. Where the Bible uses poetry and symbolism, to answer the theological questions of why and who. And And so we need both, because they're complementary, then they're mutually informing. Stephen Hawking, arguably one of the greatest scientists of his generation, writes, science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question why does the universe even bother to exist? And so we need both. We need both science and the Bible. Another big problem people have is they don't appreciate that Genesis was written to people many, many years ago who had a very different culture and worldview. So Genesis was not written to people who have our scientific worldview. They did not think of Earth as a planet that rotated on its axis while orbiting the sun. Nor did they think that Earth was just one of many planets and that the sun was just one of billions and billions of stars in galaxies and galaxies. They simply did not have our scientific worldview. Rather, they had a very ancient worldview What did the ancients believe? How did they perceive the world? Well, firstly, they thought before anything began, they believed there was just this cosmic ocean of chaos, and that the gods created the universe out of this cosmic ocean, and that the earth was flat, and it was floating on the sea, and that the sky was this dome, a solid dome or a firmament that was holding the, the heavenly ocean at bay, and then above the heavenly ocean, you had the heavens where the gods lived. And of course, the sun and the moon and the stars flew and existed in our atmosphere in the sky and would rotate around the earth. That was their worldview. That's how they perceived the world. And so naturally, Genesis 1 reflects this worldview Otherwise, I mean, how else could it communicate to the people of that time? And so in Genesis 1, what we see, it all starts off with a chaotic water. And then God separates the water into two. So you have the water above and the water below. And then God puts the sun and the stars and the moon in the sky in our atmosphere, not in outer space. It merely reflects the cultural worldview of its day, because it's got no other way to communicate with those, the people of that time. And so this suggests very strongly to me that the Bible is not using scientific language, but the language of poetry and imagery to communicate some very profound theological questions about the who and the why. What are these theological truths? Well, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So before God begins to create, there is this formless, empty, dark, chaotic water. So God doesn't create out of nothing. He's got this raw material that he's going to use to, to mold and create. We are not told where or when or how this raw material came about. But presumably if anyone asked where did it come from, the answer would be, well, from God, of course. But this story merely starts with this pre-existent raw material. And what we discover over here, unlike all the other ancient Middle Eastern creation stories, which have the gods being absolutely terrified of this chaotic water, and they have to fight it and try to subdue it in order to bring about creation, what we see over here is that God single-handedly, without even creating a sweat, brings order out of chaos. Chaos. Light out of darkness and the whole cosmos out of the chaos. How does he do this? Through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It's by his Spirit and through his Word that he brings about this cosmos out of the chaos. And so we, right at the beginning of the story, we introduce two very very important agents, the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, which, as we see, become very key players as the story unfolds, and in later Christian thought, we see glimpses of what later Christians called the Trinity. And so we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, the word Spirit... In Hebrew, it's ruah, and it means spirit, or wind, or breath. Wind is extremely powerful. The ruach of God is that dynamic power and energy of God that brings about order out of the chaos. And breath is essential for life. Without breath, there is no life. And it's the Ruach of God, that, that life-giving vitality of God that brings about life and gives life. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 7 where God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living being. Without breath, no life. And it's God's Ruach, God's spirit that brings all life. And then we see God's word. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. It was, you know, God simply spoke the word and things happened. God merely speaks and, and creation comes about, comes into existence. There's no fight, there's no sweat, there's no hard work. Simply by his word, he brings life. And all of this happens over a six-day period. So the first line in in, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. So in the first three days, God brings form. And in the next three days, God fills that form. So there's a a correspondence between day 1 and day 4, day 2 and day 5, day 3 and day 6. In day one, God creates light, the form. And then in day four, he fills that light with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, God creates sky and sea, the form. And then on day five, he fills the sky with birds and the, the sea with fish. On day three, God creates land and vegetation. And then on day six, he fills the land with animals and humans. And so we have God being depicted as an artist. Who, on the first three days, he sketches the outline of creation. And in the next three days, he colors it in and fills it in. And then on the seventh day, he takes his rest. He rests on the Sabbath. And, and, and we see God has a Sabbath, which becomes a very important concept, Sabbath, for the Jews, as we will see in the unfolding story. And so, Genesis 1 has this literary, it's a literary device, has a literary framework, which models a working week and shows us the importance of Sabbath. But more than that, the six days of creation shows us that God brings about creation in a very ordered, structured way, in a very sequential way. Now, of course, the presentation doesn't fit in with our modern science. We have you know, three days before there's a the sun. We have vegetation growing before there's a sun, so how does that work? Uh, And we've got this heavenly ocean and, and, and the sun and the moon all within our atmosphere. And so it doesn't fit our modern science. It's reflective of their ancient culture. But what it's revealing, what it's teaching, the profound truth, is that there's an order and a structure to creation. Everything's in balance. Everything's in harmony. God has brought about A creation that is harmonious and everything's in balance. And God declares it's good. After each day, he looks at what he's done, he goes, That's good. And right at the end, he goes, That's very good. It's good. And so, this teaches us a lot of Genesis chapter one teaches us a lot about God and about the world we live in. It also teaches us a lot about humans, but we'll look at that next week. Today, we'll just focus on what it teaches us about God and the world. So what does it teach us about God? Well, it teaches us that God is very distinct from creation. He's very different from creation. He stands over creation. He is the one who brings about all things. He brings everything into existence, so so he's very different from creation. It also shows us he's very powerful. He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't have to struggle. It's merely by his word and by his spirit that he brings creation about. He's very powerful. But he's also very personal. He's not just some cosmic force that is bringing things into being. He's very personal. We see this particularly in verses 28 to 30 where God speaks to people. He addresses humanity directly. He speaks directly to us. We'll look at that more in a few weeks' time. And he's also presented as king. He stands over creation. He controls all of creation. He rules over creation. And so the sun and the moon and the stars are not gods like the ancients believed who controlled destiny. They are merely objects God has created to govern the seasons. And God names everything. Naming something was very significant in the ancient world. If you named something, it implied that you had authority over it. God names everything. He has authority over everything. And therefore, God is presented as the king of creation and creation as his kingdom. It also teaches us a lot about creation. God brought it into existence. It's not just the chance of uh, some random chance that has brought it about, but God has willed it into existence. And it's God's kingdom. It's being brought in to be God's kingdom. And it's good. It, it's good. Uh, creation is not, some, it's not depicted as something that is evil and, and, and terrible and bad, and we need to escape from it and get up to heaven. No, it's shown to be good intrinsically good. And we should celebrate creation just as as God at the end of each day went, wow, that's good. We too should be going, wow, that's good. And when we start celebrating creation, it leads us to worship the creator who has created it. Now, of course, creation comes out of chaos. There was this cosmic chaos that, that symbolized all these cosmic forces. And there's There's some sort of power about creation. Creation can be terrifying. Nature, the power of nature, is is terrifying in many ways. And and yet, God has taken all these powers, all these these forces that that can be so terrifying, and He's created an environment that can sustain life. He's brought order to it, He's brought harmony to it, He's brought balance to it, and He's made it beautiful. And He says it's very good. And so we can celebrate creation because creation is good and it's been created by a good God. And creation is a temple. Creation is a temple. Now, we don't often get this, but in Genesis 1, and particularly Genesis 2, there's a lot of symbolism within it that suggests that it's been presented to us as a temple. What's a temple? Well, Everyone in the ancient world will know exactly what a temple is. A temple was a place that they would go to meet with their God. A, a, a temple was the place where heaven and earth met. It was a place where God's realm and, and, and humanity's realm intersected, where you were actually able to go into the presence of God, and it was a place where God would be dwelling in the midst of earth. And in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as I said, there's a lot of symbolism that we see that is also found in temples of that time period. And even more specifically, is actually found in the Jewish temple and in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent that was created to function as a temple before Solomon eventually built the, the, the temple. And there's a lot of symbolism within it that is reflected in the creation stories. And a lot of scholars have also noticed that temples were often created in six stages, in six periods, just as you have in creation, you have six days. And so, for example, in the book of Exodus, when it's talking about the construction of the tabernacle, it is presented as being constructed in six days. And each stage is introduced with the phrase, and the Lord said just as we have in Genesis and God said. And so it's been presented as six stages. And then when it gets to the seventh stage, we read in Exodus 31 and verses 12 to 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbath. Six stages of construction, Sabbath. And so there's a very deliberate correspondence between the, the, the construction of creation... And the construction of the tabernacle and temples. And what is the last thing you put into a temple once it's being constructed? An image. An idol. The image of God. What is the climatic thing that God places within creation? His temple. His image. Humanity. And that's the reason why the the, the Jewish temple never has an idol or an image in it because the only image that would do is real, live, breathing humans, not some idol of stone or wood. And then it says that God rested. Now, that doesn't mean he was exhausted after six days' work and he had to put his feet up and went, whew, I'm glad that's over. No, it means he came and he took his rest. He came and he enjoyed creation, marveled at it. We see this in Psalm 132 and verses 13 to 14. It says that God chose Zion. Now, Zion's another name for Jerusalem. More specifically, is referring to the temple in Jerusalem. And it says God chose Zion, the temple, to be my resting place. It was the place where God would take his rest. It was the place where God would take up residency. He would dwell there. This would be his home. And creation is depicted as a temple, as the place where God wants to come and take his rest. He wants to take up residency. He wants it to be his home. Now, we normally miss this because we always think, well, heaven's way up over there, way out. God is far away. God is distant. But that's not what the original idea was. God was wanting to come and make his home amongst us and live amongst us and take his rest in creation. Now, of course, the world today is a complete mess. We'll get to that in a few weeks' time. But it wasn't supposed to be like that. That wasn't God's intention. God's intention was to make a residency for himself and to come and be at home in his creation with humanity. And so within this passage, we learn a lot about God. God is personal. God wants a relationship. He wants to come and live with us and be at home with us on earth. And we learn a lot about the world. The world is good. It's intrinsically good. It was created to be the place and the home for us and for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for, for Genesis that's so, so rich in meaning and so profound. And Father, forgive us the times when we've, We've got so caught up on details and, and, and conflicts between science and poetry that, that we've just missed the point that you are an awesome God who has created an awesome world and you want to come and live with us because you want a relationship with us and you just think it's a great idea. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for the times when we, we have falsely thought that you're distant and disinterested in the world or we thought the world wasn't was an evil place and we've, we've treated it badly. Father, help us to have a good understanding of your world and your purposes and ultimately help us to find our place within this story. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at